church. It's time for me to preach at last, right? <laughs> I've been waiting out there, excited to be up here. Uh, this morning, uh, guys, if you turn the lights on up here for me, uh, even though I'm only 25, I have a 21-year-old, right? Um, and I've gone blind, so if you get the lights for me. Uh, this morning, as we open up God's Word uh, together, I want you to turn with me over to the, the Gospel of Luke and chapter 15, a, a chapter that's probably very well known to you, even if you don't know uh, what chapter that is, you know the stories in it. And as you make your way there, let me tell you why we're going there. We're starting a new sermon series today about spiritual maturity. And through this series, we'll be looking at God's Word together and and asking and answering two main questions. Uh, First, what is spiritual maturity? And two, how do we grow up into it? And so today, I want to begin where we always should begin, with God Himself. Because if we're going to grow up into spiritual maturity, Uh, Spiritually mature people, we need to understand deep in our hearts what kind of God is God. What is God really like? What is He like? A.W. Tozer said it this way once upon a time, that what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is as pure or base as the worshiper entertains entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. And I think Tozer is exactly correct here, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, not only because, um, as Tozer says here, that we become like what we deeply believe God to be like, but also because the kind of relationship that we have with God is fundamentally shaped by the image that we have of Him. And so, in other words, what picture do you have of God as you think about Him? And that picture that you have in your mind of what God is like will not only shape what kind of person you become, but it'll also determine what kind of relationship you have with that being. And so I want to ask you that question. Hold that in your mind. What comes into my mind when I think about God? And I invite you to stand if you're able. Uh, Guys, if you can get these lights, that would help me a lot. Um, uh, We're going to read the first 10 verses of uh, Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. 
Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we, we do pray this morning as we open your word that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit and you would reveal to us what kind of God it is that you are. Help us, Father, to see you clearly from your word and to be shaped by what you tell us in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, one of the things I love about Jesus is that he often does not answer directly a question that is being asked. He either answers a question with a question or he answers a question with a story. Uh, Jesus is asked, as you read the gospel account, something like 165 questions of which he directly answers only four. And he always is trying to draw in people and help them to understand more about who he is uh, by telling stories or tell, or asking questions. And what he does here is answer a question that's an implied question that's being asked. Uh, what's the question that Jesus is being asked that he's answering? And the implied question that's being asked by the Pharisees uh, about the fact that the tax collectors and the sinners are all coming to, to Jesus and He is eating with them and enjoying fellowship with them, their implied question about that is this, doesn't fellowship with sinful people make you unclean? Isn't that how this works? You see, the, the Mosaic Law, if you read it, uh, specifies all kinds of things that could make a person become unclean. So having an infection, or a physical defect, or having recently given birth, or having a bodily discharge of any kind, or touching a dead body, or uh, any kind of other thing. In fact, even touching someone who had one of these things made you unclean as well. And so the scribes and the Pharisees then, reasoning from that, thought that contact with any kind of person whom they regarded as a sinner was a defiling event and made them unclean. And so they figured that Jesus was making himself unclean by being with these people and identifying himself, therefore, as one of them, as a sinner. And a sinner can't be the Messiah. Amen? And so they were making up in their mind in that moment that Jesus is a sinner, not the Messiah. So then why is Jesus telling these stories? To challenge their perspective and to help them truly understand what kind of God God the Father really is. And so according to these stories that Jesus tells that we've just read, what kind of God is God our Father? He is the kind of God that seeks out sinners and rejoices over their repentance. 
the kind of God who seeks out sinners and rejoices over their repentance. A man might have a hundred sheep, but if one wanders off, he won't think about that, that sheep that, that wandered off if he's a good shepherd and say to himself, well, it serves that one right. I hope that ram or that ewe gets eaten by wolves. They should have stayed with the shepherd after all. Right? No. He won't just write off the loss. If he cares for his sheep, what he'll do is he'll leave the 99 behind and go in search of the lost one until he finds it. And then he will carry that sheep home on his shoulders, rejoicing all the way and telling all his buddies when he gets back how excited he is about the fact that his lost sheep has been found. And by the way, why would the shepherd carry the sheep on his shoulders? I submit to you one of two reasons. Either the sheep got lost because it was too weak and the rest of the flock moved on and this one was weakened and sick and unable to stay with the herd and so got left behind. Or this one is the one that was prone to wander off. Had a little independent streak in it. And so he carries it on his shoulders because obviously this is a sheep that's not good about following the shepherd, so I'm going to make sure it makes it all the way home. Right? And when he gets home, notice this, the shepherd is more excited about the one that he found than about the 99 that didn't wander off. Jesus is pointing out a very human reaction that we're more excited about something that was lost that we found than something we never lost to begin with. And Jesus is making the point that this is also God's reaction when a sinner repents and comes home. And the next story makes the same point, this time using the example of a woman with ten silver coins. You need to know that these are dowry coins. And we don't do that today. We don't we don't have a woman pay a man to take her as his wife, right? That seems a little odd at best, right? In, in our culture, we don't do that, right? But, um, but in, in Jesus' day, the minimum dowry that you could bring into your wedding was 10 silver coins, 10 denarii, 10 days wages. That was the minimum dowry for your wedding. Now, that... To, to translate that into our context, okay, uh, it's 10 days wages at, at Illinois minimum wage. That's basically a thousand bucks. Okay, not an enormous amount of money, but at the same time, not pocket change either. This isn't money you found in your couch cushions, right? Or at least not in my couch, right? Maybe at your house, but uh, but. This is, not, this is not couch cushion money. This is a substantial amount. And it would have been difficult for a poor person to come up with this. But this was the minimum. And if you had nine silver coins, guess how many marriage proposals you were getting? Zero. Right? You had to have all ten. Those ten matters. And what women in that day would do is wear them actually on their heads as a headdress. And as they went out in public, it advertise the fact that this is a woman who is eligible to be married, right? 
It's like dragging a chunk of meat through a dog pound. I mean, you know, <laughs> um, it, was a, it was a way of advertising that you're available. And so it was, and in a culture where it was the norm that all women got married and all men got married, the idea that you would not get married as a woman was a tragedy. And so this woman is very concerned about that tenth coin that she has lost. And she searches the house. My marriage prospects are tied to this. i got to find this. So she gets out the broom. She looks under every couch cushion. She's, she's looking under every cabinet and every drawer. She's got to find it. This has fallen off somewhere. I don't know where it is. And when she finds it, what does she do? She calls all of her friends together. Hope is restored. I have found the coin that I lost. Notice what here what Jesus says in verse 10. Jesus says there is joy, and this is interesting, every word in your Bible is important, before the angels. Before the angels. It doesn't say by the angels or among the angels. It says before the angels. Who else is in heaven with the angels? God is. So who does Jesus say is rejoicing when one sinner is repenting? God is. He is the kind of God who is rejoicing when sinners repent. Who is like that woman celebrating when God has brought someone back to Himself? God is that kind of God. This is the point Jesus is making, that God is the kind of God who seeks out sinners and rejoices when they repent. Why is that important? Because it means that Jesus who is God's incarnate Son, is doing exactly what the Father does. And more than that, it means that Jesus is the Messiah. And more than that, it means that the scribes and the Pharisees have the wrong idea about God, and therefore they have the wrong idea about people, and they have themselves become the wrong kind of people. Because what you believe about God, men and women, will always show up in what kind of person you become and in how you treat other people. It will always, always show up. If you are an ungracious, angry, bitter person, it is because of what you believe about God. If, on the other hand, you are gentle, and kind, and eager to forgive is because of what you believe about God. And the Pharisees, what they believe about God has shown up in the questions they are asking about Jesus. And so Jesus is seeking to correct their perspective. They thought they were righteous, these Pharisees and scribes, because they were in their own minds at least separated from sin and sinners that might defile them and mess up their righteousness. But what they didn't understand is not only were they sinners, but also that when sinners come near to God, they don't defile His holiness. 
Instead, his holiness cleanses and purifies them, and God rejoices over saving them from sin. And just to drive the point home so that nobody can miss it, Jesus tells one more story. My favorite story in the whole Bible. And one that's probably the most famous story that Jesus ever tells, the parable of the prodigal son. You read the text for us. This is what the Word of God says. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you gave, never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, what do we have in this simple story? It's a tale of two brothers and one loving father. The younger brother tells his father the equivalent of, I wish you were dead. And since you are not yet, can you give me the only thing I want from you, which is the inheritance that I've got coming when you kick off already? That's what give me my share of the inheritance now means. The Father is gracious and gives it to Him. That's all you want from me, son. Here you go. 
It probably would have been, in this day, lands that had been in the family from generation to generation, flocks, herds, family heirlooms. The son takes it all and liquidates it. And then he went to Newport Beach and blew it all every dime. Had a fit for himself for a few months, right? And spent every dime. The older brother stays home and faithfully serves his his father, but is not happy when the younger brother, having blown his inheritance and, by the way, lived like the lowest sort of Gentile, comes home and is restored to his father with a party. And that brother, at the end of the story, winds up alienated from his father and outside the party. The Father is obviously intended in this story to represent God, our Father. But the two sons, on the one hand, uh, standing for the tax collector and, and sinners who are coming to Jesus, and on the other, the older brother representing the scribes and the Pharisees who are offended by his love and stand apart from him. And Jesus is making the point that even though the tax collectors and sinners rejected their relationship with the Father at the beginning and squandered their inheritance with a life of sin, and even though they lived like the lowest of Gentiles, the Father still welcomes them and welcomes all who return to Him with grace and with restoration and great joy. And also, he's making the point that those who are offended by that kind of grace wind up outside the party, if you will. Alienated from the Father, despite their obedience to Him up to that point. And so, this story conveys the wonderful news that God's grace is really that radical. Years ago, there was a book that came out with the title, What's So Amazing About Grace? This. And we sing Amazing Grace. Well, what's amazing about it? This. The fact that the Father's grace towards sinners is this crazy. That it reaches to the lowest kind of sinner. No one, no matter what he or she has done, have ever sunk so low into sin that they are beyond the reach of God and His grace. And furthermore, that God is not only searching the horizon for their return, because I love that detail. It says, when the son came home, the younger son, it says this, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. What does that say? It says to me that every day the father was out on his porch looking. Looking for his boy. Maybe today is the day that my boy is coming home on the road to my house. That the father is searching the horizon for the return of his children. And then he runs to meet him. You know, this is the only place in Scripture where God is depicted as being in a hurry. 
God's never in a hurry. He's never late to do anything, right? But He runs. And by the way, it's still true in the Middle East that the more dignified you are, the slower you move. Okay? <laughs> Seriously. People of dignity and honor walk slowly, right? And running is undignified. It's the kind of thing that servants do. But God is a God who runs to meet the sinner. And who gives full restoration and blessing to His children. That's what the robe, the sandals, the ring, the feast is all about. He's not going to be dressed in rags. He's going to be dressed in the Father's own clothes. He's not going to go barefoot like a slave. He's going to wear sandals like a son. He's not going to have no ability to access the resources of the Father. He will have the signet ring of the Father on His hand. He's not going to have to eat gruel. He's going to eat steak like a son. There is no better news than this. There is no better truth than the reality that no one is beyond the saving power of the gospel. That no one is so sinful that God cannot save and restore and forgive and heal. And furthermore, shockingly in this story, you've got to remember the context of this, that is the older brothers, symbolizing the religiously observant scribes and Pharisees who run the risk of missing the party because they so often fail to recognize that they are also sinners in need of grace. But there's one more point that I think Jesus is making, and I think that we often miss when we look at this story, which is that neither of the brothers understood at the beginning what kind of God God really is. We've heard this story, uh, if we've heard it before, we instinctively understand that about the older brother. In fact, a lot of sermons on this story take that as its point, right? Like, don't be like the older brother. Be so judgmental toward everybody else who sins differently from you, right? But remember that Tozer quote that I read at the beginning? That people become whatever they think in their deepest heart of hearts what God is really like. What's the older brother's problem? It's not his judgmental attitude. If you think that his judgmental attitude is the problem, that actually gets the causality backwards. He has a judgmental attitude because that's what he thinks God is like. He thinks God is harsh and stingy. This guy wasn't judgmental and then became alienated from God. He was alienated from God and then became judgmental. Because he believed deep in his heart that God was harsh and not gracious. And so he obeys everything that the Father has said, not out of love, but out of duty. And so that's why he says, all these years I've served. The word there is probably better translated, slaved. All these years I've slaved for you. And I've never disobeyed. 
he sees himself as the very thing that the, that the younger brother hoped that the father would let him be after he messed up a servant. He says, I've been your slave all this time. And that's why he's offended when the father throws a party and kills the fattened calf on his wastrel of a younger brother. And why he brings up that the father never even gave me a young goat. He has missed the glorious reality of always being with the father. And the father... The fact that the Father has everything that belongs to Him also belongs to His Son. So the Father says, look, you're always with me. In other words, the blessing that you're looking for is all around you. The point of being my Son is that you get to be with me. And everything that belongs to me is yours. You want a young goat? Seriously? Everything that I have belongs to you. More than that, everything that I am belongs to you. The point is not relative scale of celebration. It's the fact that I am with you and you are my son. Don't you get it? Why are you so concerned about getting what is coming to you? You have everything. So come inside. Come near to me and enjoy the blessing of relationship with me who loves you and stop looking at your obedience to me as a matter of duty. My beloved brothers and sisters, some of us are right here. We have missed the joy of obeying the Father out of love rather than duty and enjoying His blessings not as a matter of getting what is coming to us but as part of the overflow of being with Him. And if you've become a dutiful servant rather than a loving son, can I invite you to repent right here this morning? And not miss the joy anymore of being a child of the Father. Your view of God is keeping you from really enjoying your relationship with Him. On the other hand, some of us are like the younger brother. Younger son is much more like the older than we sometimes appreciate. Like his big brother, younger son saw the father as a source of material blessings and benefits to be enjoyed, but did not want a relationship with him. And so in light of the father's amazing grace to this boy from the beginning, we might wonder why that is. And I think it's because, like the older brother, in his heart of hearts, he believed that the father was harsh rather than loving. And so that's why he wants blessings, but not fellowship. Why it takes so long for him to return home. And why he's willing to, be, to sink so low as to be tempted by the pig slop. And he thinks that the best that he can expect when he gets home is to be a servant instead of a son. And we might think that that's foolish, but we only think that because we know the end of the story already. 
And because we don't recognize the same tendency in many of our own hearts. You see, a lot of us, I think, believe that the Father is harsh. And so when we sin, we take a long time to return. We want to do something to make up for our sin, right? We want to like get to where we feel better. Well, maybe after I've done my quiet time, like five days in a row, well, then I can go confess my sin. Well, maybe, you know, after I was nice to my wife instead of being instead of yelling at her, well, then I can go talk to God and I can go to church again. Or some, you know, maybe if I like buy another box of Girl Scout cookies, I'll feel good about myself and then I can, you know, then I can be in relationship with God. I want to get to where I can hold my head up high. You know what that belief reflects? A view that the Father is harsh rather than gracious. And that when we finally come home, He's going to treat us like a servant instead of a son. My brothers and sisters, if this is what you believe about God, who sent His Son, by whose blood you are cleansed from all sin and made new, you have believed a lie. The Gospel of Jesus coming and giving His life for you really is true. You really are clean and purified and made new. And God has killed the fattened calf for you. And He rejoices, therefore, every time you come to Him in confession and seeking restoration from Him because that is the point. That is why Jesus came. was so that you and I could be restored to God's presence. And when you get that truth deep in your heart that Jesus loves you, that you are loved, that you are made new, that you are clean as you stand before God, what happens is it changes your relationship with God and makes it not a matter of duty, not a matter of shame and guilt, but a matter of being something you cannot stay away from. I cannot stay away from God's presence. And you run to be with Him who runs to meet you and embrace you and kiss you and restore you. So this morning, if you've had a colorful past, like if you were sharing your testimony, it would be chocolate instead of vanilla. You feel me? Right? If you've had a colorful past, you can't get on the road to spiritual maturity until you understand in your deep heart that this is who God is for you and to you. If this is you, let go of Satan's lie that the best you'll ever be in God's kingdom is a servant. You are not tolerated in God's presence. You are loved. You are embraced. You are hugged and kissed and rejoiced over. Amen.
And so that being true, I want to challenge you to rejoice in God's presence and to enjoy fully the restoration and sonship that you possess as a child of the King. Here's the bottom line. This is where I'll stop today. What you believe about God will play out in your relationship with Him and in your relationship with other people. So in order to grow to spiritual maturity, we need to not just intellectually understand, but also believe in our deep heart what we really think, what is true. That the Father is not harsh. That He is lovingly searching for and saving and rejoicing over all kinds of people, even you, even me. Amen? And then to continually draw near to Him who loves you with an everlasting love. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we, we can't fathom this kind of love and grace and care and affection for us. Father, every time that we're in a relationship with another human, we find out in many cases that the, the more we disclose who we really are, the less people like us. But Father, you knowing every horrible thing we'd ever do or say or think, sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins, to make us new, to wipe them all away, to cancel out the penalty of death against us for all those things, and to make us your children and to give us an inheritance of joy and new life with you that can never be taken away, never diminish, never be used up, never spoil, never fade away. Father, help us to believe that deep in our soul, that the gospel is really true and that we are really that loved so that we might love you and walk with you and grow to be more like you are with us, with you and with other people. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.